Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With episode 493 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means for the first time in a long time. We are here to break down everything that happened over the last week in AEW, along with everything that happened Tuesday on NXT in the same episode. Not only that, the Silver King somehow found time over the last week to watch the conclusion of the New Japan G1 Climax Tournament, and we do have some thoughts on the final three matches there. Stay tuned for that later in the episode. As we kick off this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, Allow me to remind you that this show is all about Defy. So please remember to visit Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave us some five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. You can also send in tweets and DMs, uh, questions for the show that we will read live on the air, questions and comments. This week on this episode, not that much time trying to fit this in between a very, very busy schedule, but we will get back to heavily involving you, the listeners, on next week's shows. Please also remember that here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, I happen to love the number five. And I truly hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official getting overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over, sign up, you will get bonus audio, you will get news posts, and your financial contributions will directly support the continuation of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. So with all of that out of the way, as you can tell off the top, we have a ton to discuss on today's show. Plenty of fallout from All Out on AEW Dynamite Wednesday, an entire newsworthy NXT episode on Tuesday, and of course, New Japan. So we're not going to waste any time. We're getting right into it on today's show. A quick reminder, if you are listening for one subject or the other, one brand or the other, we do have timestamps in our episode description. So all you need to do is check that out, find the timestamp, skip ahead to what you want to listen to. But as always, we do this show together because I hope you are listening to the entire program. With that said, let's kick things off with AEW this week, as I said, coming out of All Out, which means there's plenty of fallout for Dynamite on Wednesday. Somehow I did that without stumbling too bad, and I am going to Barry Horowitz myself on the back as we continue here. But look, you saw it Saturday for Collision and Wednesday for Dynamite. Obviously, we couldn't talk about it until today's show, but AEW has indeed officially ended the somewhat hard roster split they had with Collision. It makes it even more asinine in the first place that they did it, all because of one guy. I do hope there are still some semi-exclusive talent on each show as a reason to tune into one or the other, because I did like the talent that had been assembled on Collision. And for the most part, I would say they were not on Dynamite Wednesday, which speaks to the fact that that might still be the case. But like, I don't need to see the Young Bucks twice a week. You know what I mean? Like, Let me see Andrade and Miro on one show and let me see Omega 
and Hangman Page on the other. Like I, I like that. So a soft split instead of a hard split is probably the way I would go. But it's just very obvious that there's already going to be an integration of the rosters that were somewhat hard split previously, just based on what has been announced for Collision this week. In terms of Wednesday night, what we got for Dynamite, I thought it was one of the best paced Dynamites or really AEW TV episodes of the entire year. It felt fresh. It was a reset episode coming out of All Out into Grand Slam and Wrestle Dream and Full Gear. And that's a whole another topic for another day. Maybe we'll discuss it next time Vintage Chris Vanini is on one of these AEW episodes. But this whole trying to get $50 a month for pay-per-view, yeah, uh, that's not working for me, brother. And I don't know that it's something that's going to be sustainable for them. Maybe they're trying to prove to Warner that there's enough people that are interested in a monthly show. That way they can do a max deal. And, and with the idea being that it'll bolster subscriptions over there. Maybe you do five paid shows a year and the rest come free with the max subscription. I don't know what they're doing, but the idea of spending $600 a year on AEW pay-per-views, that's just, it's not something that I'm going to do naturally. So if, if there's contributions from you, the listeners, then, you know, obviously that'll be great and we'll cover it. Um, but it's asking a lot to spend that much on wrestling pay-per-views in 2023. So we'll get past that. Let's move into everything that happened across Dynamite, Collision, and Rampage that did not directly have to do with All Out on those latter two shows. But we're going to start with the big segment on Dynamite. MJF talked about wrestling independence in Indiana, got some cheap pops, and was excited to wrestle at Grand Slam because it's in New York, even if he doesn't actually, you know, want to wrestle. He was ready to call out Samoa Joe when Joe entered on his own. Joe said that he wanted to see what MJF would say. MJF made a fat joke. So Joe said, the last time I had anything to do with an ice cream truck, I was busy being the biggest star on the other company's network. This was a setup line referring to Twisted Metal on Peacock, in which Joe is fantastic. But also, you don't see his face or, you, or hear his voice. So, you know, uh, MJF made more fat jokes. Then they made small dick jokes. Joe played heel and worked MJF uh, up. He got into his face. Fans chanted, fuck you, Joe. MJF talked about the WWE tryout and William Regal and all those got booed, of course, by the fans because you mentioned WWE and AEW TV. It has to be bad. He also mentioned sending Regal back to NXT where he belongs, which got cheered. And then he told Joe he was next. Then he told the security guard story and how he took exception to it. MJF had the crowd in the palm of his hands in this segment. No question. They cheered and chanted whatever he wanted. Joe simply answered him by calling him a little bitch. So MJF lightly slapped him and Joe chose not to respond to that, instead promising he'd win the tournament, except as Max walked out, Joe kicked the rope. He then raised the AEW title. MJF low blowed him, stomped a mud hole. Joe then caught him running for a urinagi, but Adam Cole saved him from a muscle buster. MJF cried on the canvas. He was holding his neck, saying his left arm was numb. Two trainers came down and helped him off, and they sold this in a pretty extreme fashion by taking forever as he kind of walked up the ramp to the back. This was a terrific segment crossing hour one into hour two. The security guard stuff is a fair tie between them and mentioning it was okay. But I got to tell you, the focus on WWE in this promo was back to like the MJF basics that long ago became eye rolling and frustrating. And I was so excited that he started this program with Adam Cole and the way it progressed he moved past all of that stuff, and every promo that he cut was refreshing and felt different, and it was exciting to see him on screen again. I mean, here he literally told the entire Regal story again. 
Now, it did hit better with him as a babyface, but I would hope they kind of mention it in passing and then move forward into, you know, 2023. Instead, it was the vast majority of the segment. Now, look, MJF is extremely hot on the mic and the crowd was on fire for him. But Joe was the MVP of this entire segment. Just like we talked about Miz getting up on LA Knight a couple of weeks ago, Joe got up on MJF here. He basically hit him with like fine speech and called him a bitch, despite MJF going on this long winded rant and talking about WWE and all this past stuff. Joe's just like, you're a bitch and I'm going to beat your ass. And that's, you know, he killed him on that, but he was also great in the actual promo that he cut earlier in the segment. And now we have a situation where there are two heel favorites to win that Grand Slam World Championship Tournament Eliminator, which I think is the entire name of it, which is a whole nother ridiculous thing for another day. But let's not forget, Joe just tried and failed to challenge for the real world championship. So at least to some degree, it's a little bit repetitive in that regard that he's going after another world title and he's doing it while he's the king of television for Ring of Honor. How many title matches is this guy going to get while already a champion? You know, it's, it's kind of stupid in that regard. But look, MJF and Joe, extremely hot. It's going to make for a continued good feud going forward. And I'm all in in terms of wanting to see what happens next. And that's really what is the most important. So let's talk about the first of two Grand Slam World Championship Tournament Eliminator matches. Uh, let's start with Roderick Strong, who on Rampage Friday refused to cooperate in an interview saying Adam Cole knows what he did and Strong will tell his story on his own time, his own way. Then on Dynamite, he sat in a chair with the kingdom by his side, talking about coming from a broken home and how wrestling is not just a business, it's everything to him. But the funny part was all of like the childhood photos that they showed were completely normal photos, proving that everything he was complaining about was either fake or at least exaggerated. And this is the type of shit where the dumb QTV gimmick could really come in handy. They investigate the claims. They realize he had a totally normal, supportive family, a perfectly good childhood. Roddy was spoiled as a kid. Like doing something like that with QTV, that would hit. It's the perfect situation for it. I doubt it happens. But this was solid stuff from him. Whoever put this together has done a great job making Strong interesting. Really his last two gimmicks, how he ended NXT and how he started AEW are the best character work of his career. And the way he said he'd win things alone made it decently clear to me that the kingdom's probably going to help him cheat to win some of his later matches. Strong came down for his match as that MJF segment I just mentioned ended. He screamed at Cole for caring so much about MJF's neck while he's, of course, been in pain with his own neck injury. All of this worked pretty well. So the match was Roderick Strong against Trent Beretta. Strong countered a hurricanrana into Stronghold. Beretta countered right back into a nice pinning combination. Strong eventually hit end of heartache to get the expected victory. Damn good match. There was a funny gimmick here where Strong wore the neck brace before and after the bell, but obviously not during the match. Kingdom also lifted him on their shoulders, and they're doing a gimmick called Neck Strong with t-shirts. Enjoyable. It's a good personality uh, work from Strong. We haven't gotten that much from him, obviously, in his entire career, and he struggled so much in that area that even seeing shreds of it here is nice. Uh, there's another tournament match. We will discuss that in a little bit. On Dynamite, Orange Cassidy opened and was actually allowed to cut a promo without the fake interview setup. Big time chance and cheers. He said despite losing the title, he would be on TV every week. And then he said his catchphrase. Opening with Orange was smart. 
having him be the first guy on TV after All Out, that tells me he's going to be in the main event scene sooner than later. And look, I know he's 39, and that doesn't really fit the requirements, but Orange, to me, has felt more like an AEW pillar than Jungle Boy ever has, and, and really maybe more than Sammy Guevara has too. It's just he doesn't fit like the description of what a pillar is supposed to be, a young talent upon which AEW is going to be built. But he's done a lot more for AEW than those guys have, just by direct comparison. On Dynamite, there was an international championship match, John Moxley against AR Fox. And if you don't know my take on this just by hearing those couple words, then you're not a longtime listener of this podcast. Mox and Fox uh, both entered as Orange was exiting, almost like twisting the knife a little bit. Uh, Fox had a bunch of flips, including a 450. Mox eventually hit the hammer elbows, a lariat, and Death Rider in a full sequence for the win. All I could think about was why the fuck is AR Fox getting another title match? He already got one he didn't deserve because Darby Allen randomly vouched for him. And now he's getting another because all he's done is lose since. Sorry, it's stupid as shit. Why not give someone else a chance? How about one of the guys Blackpool Combat Club feuded with, like Chuck Taylor? Darby came out after this and raised Fox's arm as if he had done something when he lost to Mox in a mediocre match. And then as this happened, Christian Cage and Luchasaurus confronted Nick Wayne backstage. They shit on his father. They suggested that Christian, not Darby, should be his mentor. They made a quip about, I'm going to call your mom. Same shit, different night. But at least it worked in the context of Darby feuding with those guys for the TNT title. And it gives additional depth to this feud where obviously Darby is not done with them. Now maybe they'll have to fight over Nick Wayne. But again, AR Fox. Getting that title match, I'm sorry. Come on, Us. It's a joke, right? It's a joke, Us. You ribbing me? So let's move to the other Grand Slam World Championship Tournament Eliminator match uh, quarterfinal. Darby Allen against Nick Wayne. Now, before we get into this match, okay, it's worth noting that Wayne teamed up with Elijo Del Vikingo in a random tag team win over Kip Sabian and someone named Gringo Loco on Rampage. Then he teamed with Commander and lost to Aussie Open on Collision. And despite that, and despite the fact that he was just signed to AEW, and there's tons of experienced talents with winning records around, 18-year-old Nick Wayne got put in a world title tournament for no reason whatsoever. I hate this. I hate this crap. Stop. Stop with the crap. So Darby injured himself early, missing a cannonball tope into the barricade. It was gnarly. He dapped Nick up in the middle of the match, then grabbed a mic and criticized him for punching like an 18-year-old. So he punched him again, and it was weak also. So then Darby puts his hands behind his back, and Wayne super kicks his head off. Then Christian's music hits, and the heels enter. Nick took Darby off the apron with a hurricanrana outside. Wayne hit Wayne's World, then missed it, trying off the top rope inside. Allen was set for coffin drop to end the match. So he just climbed down, I guess, because he didn't want to hit the finisher on his friend. So Wayne then puts him in Last Supper. The referee starts counting. Darby's shoulders are up while the referee's counting. Allen then hits Code Red. He bends Wayne's arms together behind his back with like his leg over his neck. Then he starts kicking. 
this guy's head. And he's like stomping the base of his skull and his neck. And at this point, my DVR cuts off. Now, I looked for the finish online. I could not find it as hard as I tried. I read descriptions of the match. They just say that Darby won. I don't know if he eventually hit Coffin Drop or if Nick tapped out. I, I don't know how the match ended. I'm sorry. I, I, I do this as the best I can. But what I do know is Darby got the win. So again, I don't know how it ended. But the idea that Darby would not hit Coffin Drop and then 30 seconds later try to dislocate Nick's shoulders and smash his head in with his foot and give him a concussion or break his neck, that did not compute whatsoever. The other stuff earlier in the match, I was fine with that because he's the mentor and there are a couple baby faces and he's trying to teach him along. But when it comes to a match finish, the goal is to win. And again, in a 30 second span, without Nick angering him in any way, he went from not hitting a regular finisher to instead deciding to try to injure and concuss the kid. This was not for me at all, as you can tell. Well, that was a great matchup, but the ending sucked. And I'm being nice. It actually wasn't a great matchup, but the ending absolutely sucked. Obviously, we got the right winner because Wayne should not have been in this tournament at all. And on that note, really, I don't even understand why they've put this match in the tournament. Forget the fact that Wayne was in the tournament. Why would you do this match in this spot when it's something that should be kind of built out over a period of time because they're so close to each other? Now, maybe the idea is that they wanted to force this into fruition because Christian is going to recruit Nick even further now because Darby was soft on him. But again, Darby wasn't that soft on him. Yeah, he didn't hit the finisher, but he tried to kill him. So yeah, I, I don't know. This just did not work for me. But look, beyond the fact that Nick should not have even been in this tournament, it is so frustrating to me how the tournament is again telegraphed before it even began. Just like what happened with the random, whatever it was called, the generator tag team tournament. Not only should there be bigger names in a world title tournament. There should be at least some effort to make it feel like the winner is going to be a semi-surprise rather than bashing us over the head with two consecutive storylines. Like we know Joe and Strong are going to be getting title matches, one at Grand Slam and one at Wrestle Dream. Literally the only thing we don't know is which one of them is going to win the tournament and which one of them is going to probably take a shot at MJF and just get a shot. It seems like Strong is going to win the Grand Slam and Joe will eventually get the Wrestle Dream, if I had to guess, but I'm not exactly sure. Anyway, let's move on to more positive things. Uh, Ricky Starks cut a great angry promo over highlights from the strap match on Dynamite. He said Brian Danielson did not tap him out and no one in the business could do it. Starks wondered when it would be time for someone like him who does what he says to succeed. Fantastic stuff. It would have been a promo of the year contender if there was more substance to it. Instead, it was mostly just a bunch of passionate one-liners, but it was still great. Uh, it would have been nice if they promoted him as being on collision as a reason to tune in because I want to see more from Starks. And I'm not positive as of right now that he's going to be on the show. So they need to promote that better. On Rampage, Hangman Page fought Brian Keith. Fans who knew Keith really built this match up. So I got excited to see it. And then Hangman Page won in three minutes and 30 seconds with a buckshot lariat. It was a letdown for me just because my expectations had been raised. And again, it's another non-contracted talent on TV pretty much for no reason. On Dynamite, Hangman Page came out to a great ovation, but he literally said nothing in like, I guess it was 90 seconds. He talked about being proud of the charitable contribution for winning that battle royal. Swerve Strickland, though, interrupted. 
Swerve said Hangman should be ashamed that he used to be the cornerstone of AEW, but just wrestled on a pre-show. Swerve said Hangman either lost his confidence, his smile, or his desire. He pointed out how Hangman doesn't have new gear, new merchandise, doesn't wrestle singles matches, although of course he just did, but he meant on like Dynamite Collision and like major shows, and how he's gotten comfortable in his new contract. Swerve said with Hangman's same opportunities, Swerve would already be AEW's first black heavyweight champion. So he asked Paige to step aside and give him his spot or man up and show what cowboy shit is all about. Paige lost his cool saying if Strickland wants a match, he can go backstage and get it, but he was done listening to him. So Swerve took a shot at his wife and kid that led Hangman to run back into the ring, get in his face, only to be attacked from behind by Brian Cage with the segment ending in a drill claw. Now, first of all, this is probably the freshest storyline that AEW has done in a long time, just in terms of the talent combination. Obviously, what they're doing with MJF and Adam Cole is great, but Hangman and, and Swerve, it's something that like I didn't even conceptualize, and yet they're giving it to me, and I'm really excited about it. Two top-tier young talents that have been underutilized of late. Swerve got the ability to show his natural promo ability. Did he get nervous and mixed up a couple times? Yes, he did, but he'll get comfortable in time. Hangman now gets an opportunity to do something that actually matters. Plus, AEW is playing into the realities of what Hangman's booking situation has been recently. He's been the forgotten man in terms of creative. So no lies detected in Swerve's promo, really. And again, not to be pessimistic, but it sure does feel like another loss for Swerve. So it's one thing for Swerve to come out and say, I'm not getting opportunities like you did. Well, one of the reasons for that, Swerve, is because you lose every single time you're in a match of substance. And the one major singles feud that he had or was going to have with Keith Lee, they never actually wrestled each other. So, you know, maybe AEW surprises us and either does a three-match series or they let Swerve get the first win and then Hangman comes back and beats him or maybe Swerve wins straight out and then Page gets his mojo back against a different opponent. But if they're doing a series, they could do the first one at Grand Slam, follow up at full gear in a couple months. That's what I would do. Maybe it's 50-50 booking, but it would be a highly valuable series and ideally both guys would be elevated from it. Anyway, I loved this, especially the way Hangman sold that what Swerve said was true by keeping his head down. I think at one point he even mouthed saying, you're right. And he, then he didn't respond until he was actually triggered by the mentions of his family. I'm real curious to see how this develops, how they progress the storyline, and how they book the feud. On Dynamite, Tony Storm backstage did not recall costing Ruby Soho her match by taking the spray paint out of her hands. We learned there will be a four-way eliminator match to face Soraya at Grand Slam. Storm just remained eccentric and threw her shoe again. It's a fun gimmick, and the entertainment level of it is high, but we're not really getting much substance out of it, at least not yet. Best of all, though, is that she's reinvented herself getting away from that rocker shtick. Wouldn't be surprised if the tits out gimmick, which, by the way, for anyone who does not know, is stolen from Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I wouldn't be surprised if that remains a part of this. They make shirts and do all that type of stuff. On Rampage, Aussie Open went after Chris Jericho, who was on commentary after they lost the Battle Royal. Sammy Guevara ran out to get his back, so it was pretty clear they were setting up a feud as a means of getting the sex gods together before they either go after the tag team titles or split up. On Dynamite, the sex gods fought Aussie Open. Sammy hit a real nice torneo outside. Jericho then ate a couple power moves and later a brain buster. Guevara hit a Spanish fly off an Irish whip. 
Jericho accidentally bumped Guevara off the ring apron. Then he hit Kyle Fletcher with Judas Effect for the win. It was a terrific match. I thought it was the highlight in ring segment of the entire episode. There were a couple instances of teammates accidentally hitting each other, and that led Sammy to becoming angry after the bell. He shoved Chris twice. So two security guys came out to separate faction members. Why? What was the reason that security was needed here? Why are they stopping fighting in a wrestling ring? I, why did they stop this and they didn't stop Samoa Joe and MJF until MJF got, you know, his neck broken or whatever and Adam Cole ran out? It just didn't really make any sense to me. I remain intrigued by the Jericho Guevara story. And as I said, this was a mini banger of a match. The ending to it was just really strangely booked. On Dynamite, Don Callis was on commentary for the Less Sex Gods match. He didn't really say or do much. Then backstage, he had a painting on an easel but refused to show it, saying he'd unveil their new target next week. There were a lot of moments like this on Dynamite where it seemed like we were going to get storyline development, only for nothing to happen, but at least we got it. On Dynamite, the TBS championship was on the line, Chris Statlander against Emi Sakura. This began 23 minutes into the show, and it was called an open challenge despite the opponent being known. Stat hit a discus lariat in Wednesday Night Fever and got the win in, I think it was four minutes and 27 seconds. I was excited to see a women's match early, and I was excited to see this particular matchup. And then it got four minutes and 27 seconds. It's like, look, Stat got a nice ovation. It's a small positive, but that's weak sauce booking, man. There was not another women's match on the rest of the show, as you know. And the only other thing we got was that Storm promo I mentioned. So grand total of women's storyline building and wrestling was less than six minutes on the entire episode. You, you just, you can't do that. I mean, it's, man, it's it's not even a secondary or tertiary story, the women's division. It's like the bottom of it. They, they just don't give a shit about it. Think about how many other things got time coming out of All Out. And this got 427 and the other segment got probably 60 seconds. It's really disappointing. On Rampage, Mike Santana, I had no idea he had a first name, cut a taped promo saying he has a story to tell. He talked about his father dying a few months after he debuted in AEW and then getting injured early during that Blood and Guts match. Pretty interesting. Not sure I have much care for him as a singles performer, but it makes it clear that Santana and Ortiz are continuing to have issues and they just came together to fill in as replacements for all in. They're not actually back together. On the all-out pre-show, uh, Roosh was waiting for Preston Vance and Drillistico after they survived that kidnapping in Mexico. He gave them a rah-rah speech saying he wanted to see that kind of intensity from them, and now they're focused on being violent and taking over AEW. It was over dramatic, but kind of fun. The funniest part was they cut to Jose at one point, and it was a clip of him trying to look mean, but he really couldn't do it. And if you go and see that, just look for Jose in that segment. Very, very funny. Uh, strange that they put this on the all-out pre-show as opposed to TV, which is where they've been building this. Maybe it's going to get replayed on Collision, but it wasn't played on Dynamite. If it doesn't get replayed, then I don't get the decision. On Rampage, Willow Nightingale and Sky Blue fought Anna, Jay, and Taya Valkyrie. Blue ducked a superkick as Valkyrie set her up for Road to Valhalla. She came back with a superkick on Jay and Code Blue for the win. Solid match, bell to bell. Fans actually gave it a nice response. Of course, Taya immediately tacked Sky, and Willow made the save because that must always happen. And lastly, on Rampage, QTV featured Johnny TV hosting, and he threw his coffee at Harley Cameron. This was among the dumbest of all of these. Excalibur said it was a hostile takeover of QTV. Who gives a shit? That's what I need to say. 
So that was it from AEW this week, a little bit shorter than usual, of course, because so much of what happened on Collision and Rampage had directly to do with AEW All Out. But like I said, a very strong dynamite from start to finish, even if there were some individual issues within the entire show. With that, let's move over to NXT. And off the top, I just want to commend again Shawn Michaels for third week in a row putting together a damn fine episode of wrestling television. I state this because it is the lowest rated of the major television shows. I guess you can say technically AEW Collision is now the lowest rated, especially with college football back. But NXT is not getting enough attention for the quality programming they're putting on every single week. It is completely different. Like you can draw parallels between WWE main roster and AEW if you want. What NXT is doing is completely different and the ratings are improving almost consistently. We're getting a huge star on the show next week. And I don't know, you know, for anyone who's listening, I just want everyone to give it a shot and let me know if you like it. I hope you do. But regardless, we'll keep going here and actually get into NXT from Tuesday. Uh, There was a women's championship match, Tiffany Stratton against Kiana James. Stratton used a referee distraction to nail James and followed with a double handspring elbow. Stratton, for some reason, tried to use James's purse against her, but Kiana dodged it and hit 401k for a false finish. Tiffany then poked Kiana in the eyes with the referee taking the purse out of the ring. Then she hit prettiest moonsault ever for the win in like six minutes. This booking made no sense to me. They barely got any time. That was due to something that we'll discuss in a moment. But beyond that, Stratton remains the weakest booked women's champion that NXT has had in a long time. Why did she even use the purse in the first place? And why would she need to cheat to beat someone like Kiana? Why did she need to act the way she did and kind of cheat to beat Thea Hale, like 18, 19-year-old Thea Hale of all people? If anyone should be cheating, it should have been James here, not Stratton. The work was solid, but I was really disappointed by the booking. Now, again, I mentioned there was a reason why this was six minutes. Becky Lynch addressed Stratton through the Titantron right after the bell. Lynch decided she wanted to go after the one title that's eluded her. So she said she's coming to NXT next week to go for the title in the main event. Stratton later cut a promo at Lynch, pointing out how when Becky was her age, she was working as a flight attendant, not NXT Women's Champion in WWE. She also dropped, quote, see you next week, bitch, which got a big reaction. Great promo from Stratton. Her last two have been completely on point after a number of really rough promos in the middle of the ring. This is just an enormous booking. So big that I assumed they were going to save it for no mercy. We were so busy last week that I planned but forgot to mention on the NXT show that it seemed like Becky was going to come down given what had happened across Raw and NXT over the last couple of weeks. This is a really curious creative decision as well. Obviously, in a clean competition, there's no reason for Lynch to lose this match and not walk out as NXT champion. But with a younger daughter and her husband on Raw, it also doesn't really make sense for her to work two nights of TV a week, plus whatever they do house show-wise. And as NXT Women's Champion, she would need to come down there semi-regularly. She would also be the biggest name by far to come down and win a title in NXT. Quite different from Dolph Ziggler or Dominic Mysterio to spend a couple weeks down there than Becky Lynch. And even Seth Rollins, he came down for one match and then he left. That was it. So I assume there's either going to be a DQ finish or some shenanigans or something, but it's still a massive booking and really exciting for next week. I just hope they properly promote this on Raw this coming Monday night. 
And by the way, this goes to show the differences between NXT, WWE main roster and AEW. In what other show have we ever started off in AEW segment or the main event in WWE talking about the women's division? I mean, maybe it's happened in WWE, you know, a couple of years ago with Becky Lynch and Bianca Belair, but the bloodline was running so hot. They were dominating the main event. So I really can't recall the last time we've started. I don't think we've ever done it for AEW, and I cannot recall the last time we've done it for WWE. Meanwhile, with NXT, it's a regular occurrence for us. And obviously here we're doing it again. So and that's not because we're forcing it. It's literally the biggest storyline that's going on there right now because Becky Lynch is coming down next week. Anyway, we'll move on. Uh, Lyra Valkyria and Roxanne Perez were conversing in the women's locker room about how big it was that Becky was coming to NXT when James came in throwing a fit after her loss. Uh, Perez stepped up to her. Kiana got in her face and Roxy then just straight slugged her with a forearm, presumably building to a match next week. This is a perfect example of a simple match build that I really prefer to like what AEW often does, just randomly throwing people in the ring for no rhyme or reason. They could have done this anyway, as they were both in the Fatal 4-Way last week, so they already had a reason to do the match. And yet, they gave additional storyline build to make us care about this match next week. Lyra later was giving Kalani Jordan advice when Dana Brooke stepped in pissed off that Valkyria was trying to take her role as her mentor. This obviously led to a match that will happen next week. Not much really to say here other than that, Lyra absolutely must beat Dana. Ilya Dragunov fought Oro Mensa. There was a perfect springboard moonsault from Mensa early. Dragunov hit an interesting toss powerbomb late, and he got the win with Torpedo Moscow. Damn good match, as you would expect between these two. Some interesting counter sequences. It almost made it come across like it was a round of Street Fighter or something like that. Really unique. And we finally got Dragunov going back to Torpedo Moscow, as I was hoping a couple weeks ago. Wesley came out immediately after the bell, saying Ilya has to wait because he was too close at Heatwave to not get an immediate rematch. Wes tried walking out as soon as he said that, but Ilya stopped him cold, saying he will rip the head off anyone who stands in his way. So Carmelo Hayes came out. He was offended that two guys he beat were talking shit. He revealed what Shawn Michaels said in their meeting last week. There is no asterisk from the Dragunov match, and he took advantage of Wes's mistake, so there will be a number one contendership match to determine his challenger at no mercy. The disappointment here is that fans really thought we were getting a triple threat and they chanted for it only to get number one contendership booking anyway. A triple threat with all three of these guys would be insane in a great way and it could protect both challengers eventually because they're gonna lose to Melo. I'd be down to see either match again at this point, but I wouldn't totally hate next week if they figured out a way to do a draw. And I hope it's not a double count out, but like a real draw and they actually made it a triple threat. I think that would be the better booking, the more unique booking, because again, we've already seen the singles matches between Ilya and Mello and Wes and Mello. Later, Dragunov approached Trick Williams, asking why he would lie to Hayes about knowing he can win a rematch against Dragunov. Trick stood up for himself and Mello, so Ilya said Trick should reconsider next week because he's lying not only to Mello, but to himself. It's really fun the way that Dragunov and Williams beat the shit out of each other, and now they've developed some type of mutual respect. This seemed to spoil the idea that Dragunov will come out as the winner, though another option would be Wes winning and then Trick Ilya going down in another rematch. There's also the idea of Hayes Dragunov with Williams appearing at ringside late and costing Melo the title accidentally because he actually does doubt whether he can win on his own. So there's a lot of directions they can go with this. 
Uh, Dragon Lee fought Mustafa Ali. This was a North American Championship number one contendership. Dominic Mysterio was the special guest referee. Backstage, he revealed a purple and black referee jersey, and also he had a short confrontation with Melo. Dragon hit an absolute shotgun blast of a tope suicida, sending Ali over the announce table. Ali came back with a buckshot lariat over the announce table in an even sicker spot, I would say. And he also had a spike tornado DDT and a slingshot jackhammer. Dragunov then rotated through Destino, catching Ali with a last ride style Liger bomb with a purposely slow count by Dominic. Ali immediately caught him distracted because he was angry at Dominic in a trap pinning combination with Dom delivering a super fast one, two, three to end it. Ali eventually saw the replay and he slugged Dom in the face. Then he shook Dragon's hand and he dipped out. I love the inventiveness in this match between the buckshot, the Liger bomb, and that slingshot jackhammer. Unfortunate for it to end the way it did because you really want to see a match of that high quality get like a real finish, but it made complete storyline sense. And at least we are finally getting the Ali title match that we've been wanting for a couple of months now. It does seem clear, as we've speculated for a long time, that Dragon will be the one ultimately to beat Dom for the title, but it's just being pushed a little bit further out, and they're obviously doing the Ali match first. The biggest issue was it felt like it was 10 minutes of action, but it was all shoved into a five-minute window, and had this gone longer, I mean, you're talking about a you know, B-plus, A-minus level match if they actually got the time. They didn't, but again, it was... It was on its way to being really special. I should note, I did, I forgot to say it. I did have a grade for Dragunov Mens. I had that at 3.75 stars for anyone who may care about, you know, TV grades and things like that. Uh, Braun Breaker fought Von Wagner in a no disqualification match, asked for a prediction backstage before the match. Baron Corbin said both of them have something to prove. Breaker wanting to be the alpha of NXT and Wagner wanting to play with the big boys. Corbin said he'd be out there on commentary. He might pick the bones of whoever survives. Pretty strong promo from Corbin. The refresh continues nicely with him. Wagner later backstage told the announce table how much he cherished it in a really weird promo segment. And yeah, this wound up in the main event as we expected. Not only that. He don't want no water. He don't want no bread. All he wants is meat. It was definitely a match involving two big meaty men. Oh, we got two big meaty men bumping me tonight. Uh, Wagner hit two boots, so Breaker caught a third for a pickup Liger bomb. Braun then hit a flying bulldog into a steel chair, the Steiner recliner with a kendo stick and a gut buster. Wagner straight exploded a kendo stick over Breaker's back. Then he hit a choke slam. Then he threw Braun into the bottom of the crow's nest stage. It's like a breakaway board. It exploded. Then he caught him for a pop-up powerbomb through the announce table. Breaker dropped down from Wagner's finisher back in the ring. He legally low-blowed him because it was no DQ, and then he won via spear. Braun continued beating the shit out of Vaughn after the bell. He placed Wagner's head on the bottom steel step and supposedly dropped the top of the steps onto his dome. I say supposedly because the screen went completely black and all we heard was Vic Joseph and Corbin screaming about him actually doing it. Then after the show, NXT posted on social media, Wagner being stretchered backstage with bloody gauze wrapped around his head. Now this might surprise you, but... There wasn't much in the match that I actually enjoyed. Yeah, it was big, meaty men slapping meat. There was a lot of beef out there. There's a lot of beef out here. No doubt about that. Some of the individual spots were entertaining, but Wagner is just not a good wrestler. And his stuff in particular was sloppy here. Breaker recovered far too quickly from the consecutive big spots. And the low blow finish while legal was a really pathetic end to a match that Braun should have just won clean. The same ending could have happened. 
despite him winning clean. Now, as far as the end of the show, that was cool. I mean, did they just kill Wagner off as come Tuesday, no more? Are they really going to go with a head injury angle to this degree? Amnesia? I'm so curious to see what they do next with Wagner, even if I'm not a fan of him. It does seem to open the door for Breaker Corbin. That's a positive if they do that at no mercy. Plus, you really just got to give credit to Shawn Michaels. The NXT booking, it's insanely on point. It's a completely different product, like I said earlier, from what we get Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday. And this is a great example of that. Tyler Bate fought Dabakato. Bate hit two rebound lariats and then countered a chokeslam with a punch and eventually helicoptered Kato, which was a holy shit moment. That was really impressive. Then he had a corkscrew senton finisher for the win in like two and a half minutes, maybe. This was incredibly hot for an extremely rare David versus Goliath squash match with David doing the squashing. It's not unfair to say that Kato looked like shit getting completely manhandled by this guy. And Bate is tiny. I mean, you just got to be honest about it. Because of that, the booking just really did not make much sense. It was a hell of a sight with Bate going full big strong boy with the helicopter. But other than that, I mean, why would you bring Kato back and have him look dominant and then lose in less than three minutes? Just let them have a match. I mean, if, it's okay for Bate to win, but you don't squash a giant like this. It just didn't make any sense. Uh, the Global Heritage Invitational, we had Butch of England against Axiom of Spain. Butch straight slapped him at the bell and remained aggressive throughout. He countered a standing moonsault into an armbar. They did a bunch of submission counters until Butch hit a rebound, snapped German suplex. Axiom got clipped coming off the ropes, but he kicked out of a Liger bomb. Axiom caught Butch off the ropes with a crescent kick and a golden ratio, but Butch's arm was under the bottom rope. He was able to snap Axiom's fingers and hit bitter end in a false finish as the final five seconds ticked off the clock with the match ending in a 12-minute time limit draw. So each guy got a point here, and this was definitely a good bout that showed exactly what both guys can do. But I got to tell you, I saw no reason whatsoever to book Axiom, of all people, to kick out of Butch's finisher in a random invitational match. If you're going to run that finish, number one, you do it with bait because they have an extended rivalry. So you give them the draw and you have bait kick out of it because he's probably kicked out of it before. You don't have Axiom kick out of it. And if you are going to have Axiom kick out of it, then you do it in the final match to determine the winner of the group, or you do it in the actual final of the entire Invitational. You don't do it in like an opening round equivalent type of match. This was a throwaway. So it was a stunning booking decision. I've been giving Shaw Michaels a bunch of credit on this episode. Not here. I thought it was a very bad decision to end the match that way. We'll move on to the other uh, Global Heritage Invitational match. Nathan Frazier of Jersey against Duke Hudson of Australia. This was Group B. Frazier addressed going viral for nearly decapitating himself last week, saying this match is a must win and he won't be slowing down. Frazier hit an Escalera somersault outside. Then he somehow countered a razor's edge into a hurricanrana into the turnbuckles. And then he followed with Phoenix Splash to get two points and the win. I don't really have a note here. It was the right winner and Frazier and Hudson both look good. Uh, Diamond Mine decorated their dojo, promising no more drama going forward. The Creed brothers talked about wanting their spot back atop the tag team division, saying they invited everyone into the dojo for a summit. That led D'Angelo family, plus Idris and Ofe and Malik Blade to walk through. They threw barbs at each other. Hank and Tank and then Lucian Price and Bronco Nima came in. The heels refused to shake hands. Scripps put over their street cred. Then Umberto Carrillo and Angel Garza were last in the dojo, going straight up to the family and starting a huge brawl. Later, Diamond Mine was excited that they got physical in the brawl because they hadn't been doing much of that recently. All this was a bit corny. 
It seems like it's going to result in a battle royal of sorts. The division needed a refresh, so it's nice to see some effort being put into establishing which teams are on top. But now the key is going to be having them rotate against one another and have so many of them uh, get time on screen because there are numerous heavily developmental teams in this group. Also, I did think coming into NXT, we were supposed to get Umberto and Angel in a match. It said they were coming back to NXT you know, next week, last week in that video package. I guess technically they did show up on the, on the show, but I was expecting a match and you know they didn't really deliver that. That was a little bit disappointing. Uh, Gigi Dolan fought Thea Hale. Thea was excited about Becky coming to NXT next week with JC Jane no-selling it while teaching Thea how to wear darker makeup. Gigi came up calling out JC, trying to negatively influence her. Blair Davenport then talked some of her own shit. Hale got in Dolan's face and it resulted in a match. Then during Hale's entrance, Jane prevented her from doing some of like the signature stuff that she does, like showing her energy, using the bullhorn, posing on the canvas. JC was just like, you know, that's childish. You're beyond that, basically, is what she was trying to say. So Thea got the Kimura lock on Gigi and Dolan struggled to reach the ropes. She eventually did get the ropes, though. Uh, Then she reversed Hale into the ring post outside, only for Davenport to take out Dolan at ringside with the referee's back turned. Hale put the Kimura lock back in for the submission as Jane blew a kiss to Davenport for her help. Definitely like a lot going on here. The continued concept of Jane corrupting Hale and turning her into a bad girl, that's fantastic. You presume Chase U is eventually going to try to get Thea back to her original self. That could make for a nice little gimmick run. Obviously, using Dolan and Jane um, you know, as part of this made a lot of sense. Davenport getting involved didn't make a lot of sense, but it seems like they're going to be explaining that next week. And lastly, Drew Gulak gave Miles Borden shit for taking the opportunity he was offered last week. Gulak and the crew said he wasn't ready, but now that he's got the chance, he better make it count or else. I just wish they would have given a little bit more in terms of what these guys are, what they're doing, Gulak's motivation beyond just training a couple guys. You know, they have this nice little group that they're forming, but they're not giving a lot of motivation behind it, and they're not making it feel important. It really does feel like a low-card group, which is disappointing because there's some talent there. So I hope we got a little bit more from that. So that is really the week in NXT. As I said, a really damn good episode, a lot of high-quality stuff. But then as we kind of progressed and got to some of those final, smaller, you know, individual match booking issues, I don't mind saying it fell apart, but it left something to be desired in certain situations. So, you know, the last three weeks, like I said, have been really strong for Shawn Michaels. The prior two weeks, probably stronger, more cohesive episodes. But this was largely building to next week and No Mercy. And next week, of course, with Becky Lynch showing up is going to be a big deal. One other NXT note before we move on, uh, Brian Pillman Jr., who did not have his contract renewed with AEW, he has signed with WWE, and he's begun working in the NXT Performance Center system. So, you know, there's no right now storyline, it seems, for someone to debut, but my guess is that they will do Pillman in the crowd at No Mercy uh, at the beginning of October. That's just what I think the plan is. Now, before we get out of here, I mentioned that I did watch uh, New Japan G1 Climax 33 over the last week. I have notes from the two semifinal matches and the final, if you are interested, which hopefully if you're still listening to this point of the show, you are because I did take a lot of time to do this. Now, just a heads up, um, the breakdowns are relatively short, but one of them is a throwaway. Two are pretty important, so that's what we're doing here. Uh, The one that's a throwaway is Kazuchika Okada against Evil. 
The referee got knocked out. That opened the door for Okada to get beat down, including a really funny chop by Dick Togo, who flew off the ropes and like did a chop right into Okada's upturned taint. Like he was on his head doing a handstand and he chopped him in the taint. I shit you not. The process repeated later with Togo choking out Okada with a wire of some kind and then Evil low blowing him. So then in the final two minutes, business actually picked up. There was great extended counter sequence with finishers. Uh, Okada kicked out of everything as evil. Then he delivered it right back, following with the Rainmaker for the win. Now, I saw this got 4.5 stars somewhere. This might be the biggest gap I've ever had in a match rating with someone. In what world was this an A match, let alone a high A match? The House of Torture stuff was torturous. And even though both the crowd and commentary were fantastic, they were very entertaining, that did not save what was a mediocre match. I gave this 3.25 stars and a B. How someone got to 4.5 on this, it's not even in the realm. I can't even imagine it. Now that said, let's go to the other semifinal. Tetsuya Naito against Will Ospreay. Naito stopped Ospreay from an Oz cutter on the ring apron, countering into a neck breaker off the post and another off the apron. Osprey flipped out of a top rope poison rana, then hit a draping 450 plus a Liger bomb in a really sick sequence. Naito had an incredible counter off a power bomb into a spike DDT plus a brain buster soon after. Naito missed a Phoenix splash only to immediately get drilled with hidden blade. The crowd was on fire. Osprey delivered a kicking exhibition at Naito's head and drilled him with hidden blade and another false finish. Then he hit Oz cutter with a cocky cover for another false finish. Osprey came back with a corkscrew sent on for another false finish. Naito then countered Stormbreaker into a Huracarana in an absurd spot. I don't even know how he achieved that. Then Naito countered another Stormbreaker into a version of Destino. He deadlifted him into a second Destino for a false finish. Then he hit a third Destino for the one, two, three to end what was a simply stellar match by any stretch of the imagination. As I said earlier, the crowd and commentary were outstanding. And unlike the prior match, where they made it watchable. In this match, they elevated it. This is a match of the year contender without a question. Naito's selling on the kicks, his collapsing in key moments, exceptional work. Osprey was at his best here. Do I think this was better than Osprey Kenny Omega? No, but it was easily the best match in the G1. And it felt like I was back in 2017 watching New Japan. Demerits, uh, a little bit too much cooperation, some sloppiness in parts overkill with the false finishes. But even despite that, this was incredible. Five stars, A plus must watch match. And that leads us to the final of G1 Climax 33. Tetsuya Naito against Kazuchika Okada. Naito missed the Stardust Press, blocked a Rainmaker, but ate a Mishinoku driver. Then there was a Rainmaker Destino Rainmaker counter, plus a Tombstone counter into a Destino for a false finish. People were going nuts. Okada countered Destino into a power slam. Then Naito countered Rainmaker into Destino. Then he had a third, just like in the Osprey match, for the 1-2-3 to win G1 Climax. Explosion from the crowd after the pinfall. And the chanting for Naito, just as loud as it was when he was at his peak a few years ago. Commentary sold it extremely well the whole match, explaining how Naito was on his last legs. He gave it his all against Osprey the day before. There was no way he could beat Okada. And yet, he beat Okada. And meanwhile, Okada failed in his three-peat attempt, and he was looking to win his fifth overall climax. I was curious about this, so I did a little bit of research. Naito is now five and six against Okada 
since 2014. They're three and three in their last six matches since Wrestle Kingdom 12. For as much as Okada is the golden boy of New Japan, Naito is really right there with him. He's almost like the Randy Orton to Okada's John Cena. I know that uh, Hiroshi Tanahashi is the John Cena for New Japan. I'm just saying, if you're gonna make that comparison, he's like the Orton to Okada's John Cena. And it's deserving because he's incredible. There's really something special about him in the ring. I did find this match to be a bit slow in the early going, and the finishing sequence, it was just kind of repetitive. It left something to be desired, and some of the false finishes didn't really have that much going for them. It was just really tough to watch this and judge it in a vacuum because I watched it seconds after I finished Naito and Osprey, and this just paled in comparison to that. There's no way you can watch those matches back to back and say this was as good, equally as good as that one. So I'm at 4.5 stars and an A, but it's a must watch. If you're going to watch Naito and Osprey, I highly suggest watching Naito and Okada G1 Climax 33 final. So obviously Naito walks out with the contract, the briefcase. He will fight for the title. I mean, he may defend the briefcase. He may have already. I'm not caught up, uh, but he will almost assuredly fight for the heavyweight championship at Wrestle Kingdom in January. That's going to be really exciting. Big Naito fan here. And I'm glad I got the opportunity to watch this. So folks, that is it for this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Obviously, a ton to cover this week, AEW, NXT, and New Japan. But as always, we love bringing it to you. In terms of what's coming up here on Getting Over, next week, we will have your WWE episode on Tuesday. Ironically enough, that will be the same day that WWE and UFC officially merge into TKO Group Holdings. It is going down on September 12th. I doubt there will be much news coming out of that in terms of things that we can discuss on the WWE episode. But nevertheless, there's a ton of really intriguing things happening in WWE with the return of John Cena, Jay Uso moving over to Raw. Gunther, by the way, congratulations, I can say it, because it's literally happening today as we tape this podcast. Officially the longest reigning intercontinental champion in WWE history, a massive accomplishment for him. And I'll tell you this, folks, right now, man, if what I'm hearing is real, poor Walter. Just kidding, Keith. We love you. That's the most action I've had all year. But again, WWE episode coming next Tuesday and our next AEW and NXT episode will, of course, come on Thursday. Same bat time, same bat channel. Thank you all for listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. On the way out, the reminders, as always, first, that this show is all about Defy. So be sure to leave those five-star ratings for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Take a little extra time, leave a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts. And if you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. You can also tweet and DM us questions and comments for the show. We will do our best to include them again starting next week. By the way, you can also email us, gettingoverpod at gmail.com if you have last word questions or topics or, hey, you want to advertise on the podcast, gettingoverpod at gmail.com. And lastly, please also remember, I happen to love the number five and i hope you do too because for five bucks a month or fifty dollars for the entire year you can become an official getting overhead just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over sign up you get bonus audio you get news posts and if you do sign up you will directly support the getting over wrestling podcast 
Thanks to all of you for listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. We will be back on Tuesday, but at this point, it is time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now. Thank you.